Good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, so glad that you are here, whether in person or joining us online. I can't believe it. You probably can't believe it. Kids are crying. Parents are rejoicing. Summer is gone, right? Summer is evaporating. Um, personally, I'm pumped because that means there's a lot of awesome stuff, as Pastor Scott was talking about, that's launching off here in the fall for Four Oaks. But let me make a, a mention of a particular opportunity. Um, and this is, I think, particularly relevant for those of you who are, are new. Maybe you're, you've just moved into town. You're trying to find a church home. Maybe you've been here a while and you just haven't really plugged in or connected. If you kind of fall into that, into that category in some way, we would love to invite you to a time on a Saturday morning we call Welcome to the Family. And that's an opportunity for you to go um, come. You, we, have, we provide food and childcare. We're not dumb. If we're going to call you out on a Saturday, we're going to feed you well, okay? And we end right at noon. But you, this is a chance to meet the pastors, the staff. You hear about our, our vision, our theology, our statement of faith, who we are, kind of our history, what the next step is in terms of getting involved, all those good things. So we'd love to have you. That's coming up on Saturday, August 28th. You can sign up online or head outside and sign up that way at the Hub. But this morning, we are in Galatians 5, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, let me ask you a question as we prepare to to jump back into this text that we've been camping out on. Which one of these fruits that we've talked about, these attributes, these spiritual attributes, has most resonated with you personally? In other words, as we've gone through this series and looked at the fruit of the Spirit, what's the one or two that just have really stood out to you, that really kind of put a mark on your heart, and you've said, you know, Pastor Paul, I really need to to grow in that thing. I mean, patience, I just need patience in my my parenting, or maybe it's self-control. You know, I really need self-control in terms of my disciplines. I'm not very, very disciplined. But what would you say to someone who said, The thing that is most pertinent about these particular attributes is gentleness. Hmm, I wonder how many of you would have said that. Because let's be honest, we're in the middle of a cultural context where gentleness is not highly valued. In fact, you may be sitting there and say, Pastor Paul, gentleness, I mean, don't you know there's like this culture war going on out there and like this is the time to fight and take up arms and stand for truth and we don't have time to be gentle. Or some of you might be saying, you know, Pastor Paul, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm gentle in my marriage, then gosh, I may not get my way. Or if I'm gentle with my kids, I won't be able to maintain control. Or if I'm gentle in the workplace, my employees will run all over me. Well, before we jettison gentleness so quickly... Dane Ortland quotes Charles Spurgeon in saying this, there is only one place in scripture, and this is true, only one place where Jesus takes the time to say, let me tell you about my heart. And Jesus is oftentimes talking about our hearts, right? Putting his finger on that. But there's one place in the gospels where Jesus says, I'm going I'm to tell you about my heart. I'm going to tell you something about what lies sort of in the depths of my motivation, the thing that drives me, the thing that gives me purpose. And guess which fruit of the Spirit that is? You get one guess, right? Gentleness. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's Word this morning. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And let's look at gentleness as exemplified in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is speaking, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we're coming to you as a people who freely confess, I freely confess, gentleness does not come naturally. Lord, gentleness seems so, in our cultural context, so mistimed, so incongruous. But Lord, Jesus Christ, our Savior, calls himself gentle and lowly. And so, Lord, give us the grace now to understand what that means and the grace to apply it to our lives. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may find your seat. Guys, we're going to put the cookies on the bottom shelf this morning, so to speak, and keep things really basic, really straightforward. There's two points. Two points. One, we're going to talk about gentleness defined. And secondly, gentleness demonstrated. Gentleness defined, gentleness demonstrated. Now, as we talk about gentleness defined, let me say a couple of things here that I think are important from a theological standpoint. When we think about the attributes of God, it's a mistake to think of God's character like you would like a giant pie that's divided all up into different slices. And one slice is God's love, and one other slice is God's mercy, and another slice is God's justice, etc., etc. That's not the right way to think biblically about God because God is not partitioned out. God does not exist in parts. He is actually all of those things at the same time in equal measure. He is love. He is mercy. He is truth in the entirety of his being. And so theologians call this concept divine simplicity. And it just means that God does not exist in parts God is not one thing more than the other. And we could talk a whole lot about that because whole movements, whole cults, whole churches are built oftentimes on taking an attribute of God and magnifying it to a extent that other attributes are not held in tension with it. So, so I say all that because when we, when, we come, when we come to this scripture and Jesus 
takes the only time we see this in the Gospels to speak of what's going on in his interior world, his heart. When he calls himself gentle and lowly, we want to make sure we, we understand how to think about that theologically, right? Now, as Dane Ortland sketches out in his book, Gentle and Lowly, and I'm going to draw a number of insights from there. So if anything in this sermon sounds particularly brilliant or well thought out, it's Dane's. He got it from him, all right? Got it from him. Don't think about gentle and lowly, although they are attributes. Jesus here is kind of talking about the function of those attributes in our lives. These terms, he says, and I think he's right, describe the posture of Jesus. They describe the motivational energy of Jesus. They describe the disposition of Jesus. They, they describe the central underlying motivational headquarters that defines and directs everything that Jesus does. And there's two words that Jesus uses to refer to himself. He calls himself gentle and lowly. The word for gentle just simply means meek or humble. And lowly means to literally thrust down. And I think what Jesus is wanting us to get an understanding of, to get a glimpse of this morning, what he wants us to understand about himself is that he is accessible and he is available for those who want to truly come to him. He's accessible, he's available to those who truly want to know him, for those who know they actually need him. If you are someone this morning, and you're coming in here and you're saying, and you're saying Pastor Paul, I've got to be honest, I, I'm burdened this morning. I'm burdened with my marriage, I'm burdened with this thing at home or at work. I have this besetting sin um, I, I, I'm really struggling in these areas of my life. I, I, I really need help. I know that I'm broken. I know I can't fix what's going on in my heart. I've tried and tried and tried. I can't. Guess what? Jesus is lowly. Jesus is gentle for you. See, the, the paradox, and we're going to unpack this a little bit, is that Jesus is most lowly, most accessible, most gentle to the people who know they need him the most. Now, let me try to unpack this from this text that we read from Matthew chapter 11. At this point in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus has predominantly been revealing himself by signs and wonders and miracles. He's fed 5,000, he's healed, he's exercised demons. And what's happened is that a very large group of people have begun following him and attaching themselves to his ministry. They love the miracles. They love the, the things that Jesus is doing, and they want to be a part of it. But it's at that particular point in the ministry, and this is where Matthew 11 falls, where people begin to fall away. And the reason they begin to fall away is that Jesus starts saying things like, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Jesus starts saying things like, Foxes have their nests, or, or foxes have places to lay their heads, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. See, Jesus is, is saying, look, it's great that you want to follow me, but let me tell you what's part of the deal. You can't just have part of me. You have to have the whole thing. See, they were looking for a king, a conqueror, a messiah who would come and would sort of fix all of their horizontal earthly problems. And when they don't, when Jesus doesn't do that, they begin to fall away. 
Guys, that oftentimes happened, does it not, in people's lives that we know. When things are good, we're following Jesus. But when things, our road is marked with suffering, then it becomes much more difficult. And it's in that context that Jesus issues these warnings to this city. So if you've ever been to Israel, you know in the northern part of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee, are a string of towns. And it's this, as if Jesus is looking at a map naming these different towns. And look, look what he says. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Those are all towns in the northern part around the Sea of Galilee. He said, If the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, and by the way, Tyre and Sidon are ancient enemies of Israel. They are rank pagans. And Jesus is saying, If my miracles had been done in those cities, they would have repented. But his harshest words, no doubt, come for Capernaum. See, Capernaum was the center of religious life in ancient Israel besides Jerusalem. It was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. It was the place where Jesus did much of his preaching and teaching. In other words, Capernaum had a front row seat to the person and work of Jesus. And Jesus, well, he hits them low right here, okay? Because he doesn't compare them to Tyre. He doesn't compare them to Sidon. Who does he compare them to? Sodom, right? Like, even if you're not a Christian, okay, even if you've never been in church, you know, you know something bad happened to Sodom, right? There was a lot of sin. There was a lot of rain of hell of fire. There's a lot of destruction. And Jesus said, even Sodom wouldn't have, would have repented if the deeds that I had done had been done for them. Interesting, in John chapter 6, Jesus is preaching in Capernaum when he tells them, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that's when it said many deserted him right in that synagogue at Capernaum. So the whole context here, and this is so important to understand as we get into what it means for Jesus to be gentle and lowly, the whole context is a warning. It's a warning to the proud. It's a warning to the haughty to the independent, to the one who wants to operate autonomously, call their own shots. In a contemporary context, we might say, these are the people that have sort of put Jesus on the shelf and said, you know, Jesus, I got a lot of things to do. I'll circle back around to you later in my life when I get married and have kids and I really need you. But right now, I love what I'm doing. Or it's the person who says, you know, God, you can have the hour and 15, maybe an hour and a half on a Sunday morning but the rest of the week is mine. I'm going to kind of operate as if you're not there. It might be the person who says, Jesus, you can have these two slices of my life, but these six slices over here, no way. This can take many different forms. Or lastly, I love you, Jesus, as my king. Or I'm sorry, I love you, Jesus, as my savior. But for my Lord, not so much. But for that person, if that, is, if that is you, Jesus says, look, that person I am not available to. That person I'm not accessible to. In fact, look at verse 25. He says, listen, I, 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 if you think you don't need me, then, then I'm just going to leave you alone. I will leave you in blindness. I'm going to reveal myself to those who have the heart of a child who receive me unconditionally, who know, now this is the important point, that they need me. 
Parents, you know this, right? Particularly when your kids are little. It doesn't matter what you're doing when your child has a need or request, right? You could be talking on the phone with the president of the United States, and that child is going to come at the most inopportune time and pull on your shirt and say, feed me, right? Change me. Give me something to drink. Give me something, you know, that's, that's the way children are. They treat their parents like they're completely and totally accessible. And they come in a posture of need. And Jesus says, the person who I am gentle and lowly for is the person who knows that they need me the most. Because last weekend, Susan and I were in D.C. visiting our oldest daughter and her husband. And getting around D.C., some of you may be pros at this, but I found it the most confusing, complex network of roads, streets, and highways I've ever seen in my life. We had a GPS, and it did us absolutely no good. We might as well have, like, you know, been sticking our finger out the windshield. We didn't know which state we were in half the time. We were those people, right? And it reminded me, and this is so old school, and, and a lot of you won't get this, but there was a time, people, do you remember it, when we did not have the GPS, where we had what? The trusty map. Oh, no, it was amazing. It was in the glove compartment, and they, we pulled it out, and it would circle and highlight and try to figure out what we are. But I remember some of the biggest conflicts in my family growing up between my sister, myself, and my parents is when dad would not stop for directions. Do you all know this? Do you all know this story? I mean, we could be, have been lost for an hour or two and driving around in circles, and we're pleading with my dad, Dad, please stop. Remember, you have to always go to the gas station and ask somebody for directions. Dad, please stop. And he never would, right? He's not listening to this, hopefully. Or he doesn't even have a computer, so we're okay. What was the key? In order to get help, you just have to admit you're lost. See, and the point here and what Jesus is saying is that help is always available for those who simply recognize it. Help is always available for God's easy. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, what does that mean? What is a, what is a yoke? Well, clearly it's some sort of contraption, wooden contraption you put over the, the shoulders and the neck and a harness for oxen or other beasts of burden to get them to stay straight, to go where you want them to go so that you can control them. And when we think about a yoke, that doesn't seem real attractive, does it? But it's interesting here, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and light. Remember, we said that word for easy is kind. See, in our flesh, that sounds awful, right? Oh, Pastor Paul, that seems too hard, too restricting. I don't want a yoke. I want to be free. I want to do what I want to do. But as Dane Orland notes in his book, this is really a paradoxical statement, right? That essentially what Jesus is saying is, my yoke is a non-yoke. My load is a non-load. See, the way this works with, with, our, with Jesus giving us this burden that is easy and light is kind of exemplified by this illustration. And this is from Dane Ortland's book. Imagine, he said, you're drowning at sea. And you're going under and you are gasping for air and you know you're about 10 seconds away from going under and not coming back. Your life is in danger. But imagine just for a second that someone tosses a life preserver to you and it's laying right beside you and, and all you have to do is just like grab it. 
All you have to do is just like get it and just like put it around your neck or under your arm. And you look at that life preserver and you say, no way. I don't want that wet thing around my neck. I, 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 that's going to mess up my hair. Right? That's going to mess up my clothing. That's going to tickle the, na- the hairs on the back of my, of my head. You've got to be kidding. Now, guys, we, we see how ridiculous that is, right? But that's us when we make a decision not to take on the yoke of Christ. Jesus says, my yoke is a non-yoke. See, we're all people enslaved to something. There's something for all of us that has captured our heart that we are yoked to. I don't know. I don't ask if you're yoked. We all are. I simply ask, what is it? Is it materialism? Is it power? Is it achievement? Is it sex? Is it your reputation? Is it your career? Is it your job? And Jesus says, I've got a glorious trade to make with you. Just give me all of that that load that you've been bearing on your soul, and I will give you myself. I will give you rest. I will give you mercy. I will cleanse your heart. I will forgive your sins. If you're empty, burdened, dragged down, see, my yoke is easy. My burden is like, that's what Jesus is saying. Do you know, let me just ask you this question before we move on from this point. Is that the Jesus you know? Do you know Jesus as gentle and lowly, accessible to you no matter what you're struggling with this morning? See, there, there, for some of us, you might feel like, man, Pastor Paul, I, I've got to get my life together before I can kind of get serious with God again. Nope, misses the whole point. He is accessible, he is gentle, he is lowly. The song that we sang this morning captures it perfectly. What, is this, what did it say? Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. In other words, don't wait. There's never going to be a more opportune time than when you're at the lowest of low. It goes on to say, let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Church, that's what we want to pray for each other. That's what I pray for you. Pray it for me, that we will feel our need for Jesus Christ and that we will come under his yoke, which is a, which is a yoke that is easy, it is kind, it is merciful, it is gracious to us. So that is gentleness defined. Now, let's spend the last part of our time talking about what this means for us. Gentleness demonstrated. What, is it, what we're trying to answer here is what does it mean, church, for you and I to be gentle or to exhibit gentleness in our personal relationship? Now, let me say just a couple of disclaimers right off the top. First of all, we know that Jesus was the most gentle man, human being who ever lived in the history of the world. And we, so we know that, ju- that gentle doesn't mean you don't stand for truth. Gentle does not mean that you avoid all confrontation. Gentle does not mean that there is no justice. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. Gentleness as it relates to the believer is meant to mark us in this way. How accessible, how available, approachable are you 
to the most important people in your life. See, for those who are around you, for those who are interacting with you the most, do they find you a hard person to deal with? They're like, don't, 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 go, don't go talk to dad, not until after dinner, right? Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't, he, somebody's going to explode. Somebody's going to get angry. We have to tiptoe around that person. Are you that kind of person that people naturally gravitate to to say, you know what? When I'm in this person's presence, I feel like they're totally available to me. I total, they're totally accessible to me. I know that whatever's going in, on in my life, they will receive me. And I do think, church, that gentleness is most meaningful in those relationships where people need you the most, where you are the superior. And let me, let me tell you why I say that. You see, it's when somebody is above you, perhaps you might be more kind and generous and gracious and um, loving to that person because you need something from them, right? But the true test of gentleness is how do you engage your spouse? How do you engage your children? How do you engage your employees? How do you engage the people in your community group? In other words, those people who need you in some important way. Are they able to be at ease in your presence? You see, how we engage, treat those who are dependent upon us in some way, I think is a true test of gentleness, and we see this in 1 Kings chapter 12. Let me read this for us, and I think this is going to give us a picture of gentleness. Now, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. I do wonder, church, if Jesus has this story in mind when he talks about his yoke. I don't know. We'll have to ask him. And they sent and called him. And the, I'm sorry, let's pick up at verse, let's pick up, I'm sorry, in verse 3. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Jeroboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Therefore, lighten the hard service of your father in his heavy yoke on us, and, people, and we will serve you. And he said to them, go away for three days and come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, now listen, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But Rehoboam abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Nice guy that Rehoboam sounds, right? What were the older, wiser men counseling this young king to do? 
Verse 7, I think, captures it. And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve him, them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. What was he telling them? Come on, Rehoboam, just be gentle. Be, be kind. Don't be a jerk. Watch your bedside manner, Rehoboam. And in saying this, by the way, the older men weren't saying that these people weren't going to be his subjects. He wasn't saying that, hey, no, no, these, these people aren't going to go fight in wars for you or pay, your, or pay taxes. They're just pressing upon him to say, as the superior to them, right, are you serving them in the way that you speak and engage? And we know the sad story, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, right, in your Bible. He provoked the people. He exacerbated the people. And guess, you know what happened as a result of this? The kingdom split in two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it was never, ever, ever, even to this day, in the same way, reunited with all Israel being one. Even when they were come, came back from captivity, they were all under oppression and they were all slaves in their homelands because of the pride of Rehoboam. See, Rehoboam exasperated, provoked the people. So, and I'm saying that this way because it gives us a different picture for looking at gentleness from a different angle. What is the opposite of gentleness? That's one way to come about it. What is the opposite of gentleness? Men, listen to what Colossians 3 tells you. Because fathers do not what? Provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. See, to, to, to be gentle means don't unnecessarily provoke. It's interesting that Paul is addressing men here. Peter says the same thing, and I think this is a vulnerability for us as men. Why right? all these are directed at men. What does Peter say? He says, men, don't be what? Harsh with your wives, but live with them in a wise and understanding way. In other words, be gentle. Guys, I just want to say something. This is, this is anecdotal. I don't know all the complexities of your life and all the obstacles that you face in your marriage and parenting and at work. But I, I, I feel pretty confident in saying this. Many of the issues in your life, okay, I didn't say all, many of the issues in your life would evaporate, would be diminished, would take on a, a lesser sense of problem and urgency if what? If you were just gentle. And you may say, well, well Pastor Paul, I, I, I can't be gentle because... Because, and if you have a hard time filling in that blank, it might be an indication, men, that you are taking your vision of manhood not from the Savior and God's Word, but from the culture around us. Sandy Wilson says this, and I love this quote. He says, God's man is a gentle man. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 17, 28. I have about 30 of these to go. Here we go. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Now, this one is either from Lincoln or Mark Twain. There's all kind of debate on the interwebs about it. But this is here it is. Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and to remove all doubt. Some of you men need that right on your mirror when you get up in the morning, right? I do. Let's be honest, guys. Let's be honest. 
if you were to look at this list of the fruit of the Spirit, and you were to say, which of these fruit has the church of Jesus Christ? I'm talking big globally here, right? Which of these attributes, these character qualities, these spirit-inspired fruits, which of these has most exemplified the body of Christ in the last 18 months? I know one that wouldn't be on there. Gentleness. Gentleness. Think about the things that have most animated you this season. And if you do, use that as a diagnostic. It might tell you something about your heart. What has been the fruit of your disposition? So there is a real call here, church, for us all to take self-inventory. And as you are taking self-inventory, like I have to take self-inventory, you might come to the place saying, you know, Pastor Paul, I have to admit, I'm just not that gentle a person. This doesn't come naturally to me. I struggle with this. If that is you this morning, what should you do? Because remember what we've been saying this whole time. The, the wrong application for the fruit of the Spirit is to say, you know what? I haven't been gentle. I haven't been patient. I haven't had self-control. I'm going to be a new man. I'm going to be a new woman. I'm going to walk out that door today, and it's going to be different this time. That's not the way it works. That's to run after the fruit of the Spirit as if it's the most important thing. The thing that God calls us to run after is Him. And it's by cultivating a relationship with the spirit that is within us that God produces by a good byproduct and fruit in our lives these things we read about in Galatians chapter 5. See, they're, they're a byproduct, not the goal. If you find yourself this morning coming to a place and saying, if I'm just brutally honest, Pastor Paul, I have to say, I am not a gentle person. Can I just say, that is your first step. That, that's the most important step, is to know that you need him. To know that apart from Christ, his sanctifying mercy, his sanctifying grace, you are all of those things. When Jesus simply says, the whole point of me being gentle and lowly is that I'm accessible to you. All you have to do is just know it, admit it, to confess it. And guys, this is, this, is, this is a point of pride for a lot of us, right? Whether it's asking for directions or some other thing where we have to expose our weakness, oftentimes the biggest thing keeping us from Jesus is ourselves. And not bending the knee and not saying, dear God, my life is broken. I am really struggling here. I, I'm having great difficulty in this relationship. God, can you help me? What does Jesus say to you? Oh, yeah. I am gentle and lowly. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And as we look to Jesus, we also look to his example. Listen to Matthew, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You realize that even at the point of death, guess what Jesus was? Gentle. 
See, as we commune with Christ, and as we come to know him better, which is what I'm hoping is happening for you during this season as we're digging into Galatians 5, my hope and prayer is that you will come to see how gentle he has been towards you by laying his life down on a cross, by not clinging to equality with God, but, but as something to be held onto, but making himself a servant, making himself obedient, serving you through his gentleness. And my prayer is that as we come to see the gentleness of Christ this season, that those rough places in your life, whether it's in your marriage or your parenting or at work or with friends, that God just begins through his Holy Spirit just to sand down those edges, just begins to smooth out the rough places. Church, is Jesus gentle and lowly for you? He is if you need him. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray.